0: Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Dave Johnson will bring a message from our series on the book of Revelation. We're excited to share another episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Well, welcome back to church this morning. We're going to dig in. And before we dig in to the church we're going to look at today in Revelation chapter 2, I wanted to tell a quick story to kind of help introduce this. 1948, Romania. In 1948, in Romania, the Soviet Union was at the height of what would probably be a supernova, right? Massive expansion until, whoom, claps in like a dying star. And in 1948, the Soviet Union goes into Romania and into the Slavic world in general. And in Romania, it gathered 4,000 pastors. And it took these pastors into a giant public hall, into a a giant area, and it prated them up. And one by one, each of the pastors had to talk about the glories of communism and how the church could stand side by side in communism and that it wasn't a problem. It didn't matter that they were atheists, we could still be Christians and all this stuff. And they essentially had to capitulate a little bit, because if you understand anything about the original documents of communism, it's it's an atheistic uh, political system, and it's never thrived without... Um, it's never thrived without a strong uh, uh, leader that, uh, you know, basically uh, roots out the church. The church has almost never been uh, not persecuted. The church has there's always been persecuted under communism. And so these Slavic leaders, these Romanian leaders knew that when they were going up there, they were basically saying a lie that they were going to have to talk about how great communism was and all that stuff. But what they were doing essentially was saying, okay, church pastors, go kiss the ring. In order for you to keep doing what you're doing, you need to give us a watered-down version of Christianity. The same thing happened to Christians under Hitler. Many people don't realize this. Under Hitler, what what the church, uh, what the German uh, church did, and this was Hitler, not the leaders of the church, was replaced Bibles with Mein Kampf. They replaced crosses with the uh, the, the the golden cro- or the uh, the iron cross. They replaced all sorts of things in the churches with Nazi propaganda. The same thing happened. It's been happening for years in authoritarian regimes. Well, there's this one woman. The, the, the wife of a man named Richard, and she said, Richard, it was coming to them. She said, Richard, stand up and wash his shame from the face of Christ. She knew this wasn't right. And Richard replies, if I speak, you will lose your husband. And then she replies, probably one of the greatest replies, and, and wives, take note of this. One of the greatest replies I've ever heard, she said, I do not wish to have a coward as a husband. Yeah, so this guy Richard Wurmbrand stands up and takes the podium, and to everyone's surprise, he begins to preach, and he says, delegates, it is our duty not to praise earthly powers that come and go, but it is the glory of God, the Creator, and Christ the Savior who died for us on the cross. One of the Soviet officials yells, your right to speak is withdrawn. Richard Wernbrand keeps preaching, and he says all the things all the other pastors were just too afraid to say, and he says them. And the crowd starts chanting and going wild for him. He starts a revolution in the crowd, and he's so popular in that moment that the communists couldn't touch him. But two days later, he was headed for church and walking to his church that he pastored when he was nabbed by Secret Place. And he was taken by Secret Place. And, and here's a quote from him. He said, I was led to a prison 30 feet beneath the earth where I was kept in solitary confinement. For years, I was kept alone in a cell. Never did I see the sun, moon, stars, flowers. Never did I see a man except the interrogators who beat and tortured me. Never did I have a book, never a bit of paper. After, when after many years, I had to write again, I could not remember how to write even a capital D after years of torture, finally the worst came. Communists tortured those who believed in God with red-hot iron pokers, with rubber hoses, with sticks of all kinds and, and all kinds of methods. And then the miracle happened. This is Richard Rumberland who says, and then the miracle happened when it was at the worst. When we were tortured as never before, we began to love those who tortured us. The more the more we are mocked and tortured, the more we pitied and loved our torturers. Many asked me how it was that I could love those who tortured me, and my reply was as follows, by looking as men, not as they are, but as they will be. I can also see in our persecutors, Saul of Tarsus, a future apostle, many Officers of the secret place whom we witnessed became Christians and were happy to later suffer in prison having found Christ. Although we were whipped as Paul was in our jailers, we saw the potential of the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. We dreamed that soon they would ask us, what must I do to be saved? It was in prison that we found the hope of salvation for the communist. It was there that we developed a sense of responsibility towards them. In communist prison, the idea of a Christian mission to the communists was born. We asked ourselves, what can we do to win these men to Christ? The gates of heaven are not closed for the communists, Richard would go on to say. Neither is the light quenched for them. They can repent like anyone else, and we must call them to repentance. Only love can change the communists and the terrorists. Pastor Richard Wumberland was released from prison, went right back to preaching, and went right back to prison. For years, he suffered in prison until finally um, some very kind people in the West uh, basically paid a ransom to the government for him to come to England and then to America, where he started the, the, a ministry called the Voice of the Martyrs, and it's a ministry to help reach out to the communists, those, those who were very the very people who were torturing them, and to bring these stories to light. Why do I tell you all this? I think in America, we judge the success of a church based on how many of you come on Sunday morning. We do. We have attendance. We have like a whole spreadsheet. We know how many people come to church on which Sunday and for years, and we track attendance, all that stuff. We know how much giving there is, blah, 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 blah. We, we, we look at data because we're in a data driven world and it helps us make decisions, all that stuff. But, but if you're too focused on that, you could see your success in that. You could find your success in the numbers. Too often, the church in America says, Do we have enough butts in seats? do we have enough buildings? Do we, do we have all enough money? Do we have all this? And, and it's all based on how much do we have? Do we have a celebrity pastor? Do we have, is, is, you know, are we well known in the community? We judge success based on all of these different things. But I think Jesus looks at this guy, Richard Wumberland, he looks at the church we're going to look at today and says, are you a faithful witness? None of that stuff matters. Are you a faithful witness? Or are you living on the fence of non-offensive Christianity? Kind of saying, yeah, I know I should say something. I know I should speak up. I know I should take a stand for Jesus here, but that seems hard. And then you kind of just take a couple steps back and go, I don't know if that's going to happen for me. How do we treat ourselves? Are we faithful witnesses for Jesus and I think that as we look at the book we're going to look at today, the, the church where we look at today, it's one of only two churches that Jesus praises and doesn't condemn. And so we ought to pay attention, right? Because it's very different than the American church. We ought to pay attention to the churches that Jesus gives praise to and doesn't condemn. So if you're with me, we're in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, and guess what? We're going to spend about 30 minutes on four verses, <laughs> I know some of you are like, this is such a long series, Pastor Dave, we're going to be in Revelation until Jesus comes back. You're going to take one Sunday on four verses? Yes. Why? Because Jesus does not do anything but praise this church. And if we have any hope at all, we ought to look at this church and say, Lord, make us like them. We, let's look at it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And I'm just going to read verses, uh, the whole thing, it's only four verses, uh, <laughs> And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be fearful. Um, excuse me. That totally changes the, <laughs> the Scripture. Woo! Somebody bring me a cup of coffee. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I've had probably, that's probably my problem. Be faithful unto death. Woo! That really messed that up. And behold, let's just start over. Let me tell you about 1948 Romania. No, I'm okay. I'm joking. <laughs> Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So let's talk about these churches. This is a church where the government didn't allow for anything but the worship of Caesar. There is a Roman empirical religion that is happening at this time. It's 1948 Soviet Romania. This, this, this is not uh, anything new, by the way, to our world, where the government has a system of worship, and it makes you fall in line. For communism, it's the system of atheism. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but in atheism, you need to have faith in order to believe in atheism, and, and I could go way down that rabbit hole with you later, but essentially, it's another form of worship. It's a form of worshiping the emperor, the leader, now every other church we read about, other than one other one, has Jesus has a complaint, but he, Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church. This is a church who's poor, a church who's slandered, a church that's being taken to their death by by literally by secret police in Smyrna, and they're about to be tested unto death. And you know what really frustrates me about these verses is that Jesus doesn't say, "You're about to go through this crazy temptation." Don't worry, I'll be right there. He says, go through it. You're going to suffer. Good job. What? Jesus, what do, what do you mean? He's like, no, 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 don't worry. Your life is found in my life, and I died and I rose again. So you're good. Walk right through it. How encouraging, right? <laughs> be faithful to the death, and I will give you a crown of life. And that's it. So many times we have a theology around suffering that we're wrong, that we did something wrong. What did I do wrong to to cause this suffering in my life? And Jesus said, you did everything right here. Walk through the suffering and you'll never be closer to me than than you are when you're suffering. That's not anybody knocking on the door. We're not in... We've had a roof issue, if you guys didn't notice, that's our roofer uh, that he came so that, that uh, we wouldn't have this roof issue again when the rain comes later today. How funny would that be, though, if we were doing the church? is like, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And that was happening right now. Oh, man, we should have planned this roof issue better. So Jesus basically says, you're going to go through suffering. Walk through it faithfully. He doesn't say, I'm going I'm to pull you out of the suffering and drag you by the hair out of it, and your life's going to be wonderful. He's like, no, no, you're, you're, if you stand up for me, you're going to suffer, so walk through it. Ouch. And it's just four verses, and it's gold. So first, Smyrna was called the crown of Asia. And remember, Jesus at the end says, I'll give you the crown of life. It was called the crown of Asia or the flower of Asia. It was known as the birthplace of Homer. The, the great scholar and intellect and philosopher uh, of the Greek age later it would become the home to the Bishop Polycarp, and we'll talk about him again at the end of this message, who was a disciple of John, the author of Revelation. This guy, Polycarp, was, could have been the guy who actually read Revelation to the church. It's, it's amazing. Smyrna still exists today as a port town in Turkey called Ismar, or Izmir, I'm sorry, Izmir, and it's the third largest city in Turkey. It was a town that, was, that competed with Ephesus for the religious center of Rome. The city used to be ruled by a man named um, King Emenes of Pergamum, who we'll look at Pergamum next week. In 197 BC, the city cut ties with a foreign king and appealed to the Roman Empire for help. In order to show their allegiance to Rome, they were among the first to establish temples to the goddess Roma. They required allegiance to this goddess. They were also among the first to start paying religious tribute to their emperor. They were one of the first to build a temple to worship their emperor in 23 BC. They were great at sucking up to Rome, is basically what they were great at. And they were rich. They were a wealthy, wealthy town. It was literally the Beverly Hills, the Laguna Beach of the Roman Empire. Up here, what would that be? It was the Granite Bay, right, of the Roman Empire. It was just a wealthy, wealthy town. But this little church was poor inside. We'll talk about that in a minute. They actually had a a road in Smyrna called the Golden Road. On this road, there was temples to Apollo, the God of truth healing, uh, prophecy and poetry, Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and fertility, Asclepius, the god of medicine, which by the way was a serpent that's wound around like a staff, and you see it on the back of every like uh, paramedic or ambulance or, or hospital today. Asclepius, right? Zeus, the father of gods, Sybil, the goddess of nature or earth, and here was a church that would not bow down to any of these other gods and one who would not pay a tribute inside a city with a 300-year tradition of worshiping all these other gods and Rome and the emperor. So it's this church that's surrounded on all sides, and they would not capitulate. So let's break this down a little bit more. Verse uh, 8 says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus wants to introduce himself to this church as one who died and we'll live again because that's the fate of the church. Because that is the fate of the church. Their fate is to die for him and then to live eternal life with him. And, and I think that what John is doing is borrowing probably from the words of Isaiah. And there's, there's a couple of verses that will be up on the screen. It says this, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I am the first, I am the Lord, the first, I am the last, I am he, And then jump down to verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I'm chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. What Jesus wants the church to see is, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am that God, and I am here for you, church if you would just endure the culture that you live in, this culture that's pressing in on you and trying to shape you in its, in, in its own image, if you could just resist that and be shaped in my image, I am the first and the last, and I will help you walk through the fire, but you're gonna have to go through the fire. The way that Jesus presents himself to the church matters, and it matters to us today, and it's your first fill-in. It says, Jesus presents himself as the boundary marker for the church. He is first and last. Jesus ought to be your boundary marker. He is first and last. You ought to judge success in your life based off of Jesus' values, not your own. You ought to base success in your life off of Jesus' values and his way of life and what he said rather than what you think. Your opinion, I'm sure, is great. I'm sure you know everything, right? You know, I've got a 14-year-old. I get how it works. They know everything, right? They had two teenagers. And two of them know everything now. I am outnumbered, right? I'm just joking. They're phenomenal kids. My point is that we oftentimes make ourselves the boundary lines of our own lives. What we think, what we believe, our opinion is obviously the right opinion. That's why you tell so many people your opinion, right? Because it's clearly right, and everyone else is entitled to your opinion, and they should know how to live the right way because you figured it out. But what Jesus is saying here is, no, I am your boundary marker. Your, your political party isn't your boundary. Your job isn't your boundary. Your money isn't your boundary markers. Your circumstances, isn't, they're not your boundary markers. I am. The church in Smyrna would have, had to, would have felt the pressure of their identity and, and the politics of the Roman Empire. They would have felt that pressure in every, they were like literally in the center of this pressure cooker, everybody bearing down on them. Archaeologists have found coins from Smyrna of this time period with the inscription, first city in Asia in size and beauty. And it's no wonder because they were the first to establish so much. But what Jesus is saying here is, don't be fooled. I am first and last, not your city. Oftentimes, churches can have this pressure, and I think this is one of the big lessons from the seven churches, is that they take on a bit of their culture, the culture that's around them. And it might not be Christ-like culture, but they're shaped by the culture, and we're all shaped by the culture that we live in. And what Jesus is reminding this church is, I have nothing but praise for you, church, because you're not being shaped by the culture. You're allowing me to shape you. If you go back to Revelation 2, you'll see that Jesus says, I am the one who died and came back to life again. This has amazing double meaning to this church in Smyrna. The church is literally being persecuted and people are dying for their faith. So in one sense, it's it an encouragement, it's a reminder to this church. Listen, I died and I came back to life again. Your destiny is to share in my life, which means you're going to die for your faith, but you're going to come back to life again. You're going to live eternally with me. But also, there's this second meaning. The city had been destroyed in 580 BC and then rebuilt again in 290 BC. And people who were living there often bragged about the resurrection of their city. They bragged about how the city was dead, but it rose again. So the entire time, Jesus is contrasting himself against the city of Smyrna. Who's your God? I'm the one who died and rose again, not your city. Jesus is saying, your city is a fraud. There's no hope in your city. There's no security in it. It's just a parody of me. It claims to be first, but I'm first. It claims to have resurrected, but I'm the one who raised from the dead. Too many times churches take their cues from culture uh, because we're so shaped by the city that we live in, by the, the culture around us, that we look for what is good, beautiful, and true in our city rather than in the scriptures rather than in Jesus. And Jesus' introduction is to say, take your cues from me. I am your portion. See how four verses can take us 30 minutes? All right. right, two nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Obviously, we have to cover this little passage, right? I know your tribulation and your poverty, what he says to the church. Now, this is a church that has endured harsh suffering because of their faith in Jesus. So imagine what you must have felt gathered for the first time together, and you hear the words of Jesus to your church. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know your pressure. I know what you're going through right now. I see you. That must have felt so comforting. Because this church has literally gone through the pressure cooker. And they're just constantly going through it. I know your pressure. Like I said, I wish this letter would say, I know your pressure. And don't worry, I'm going to wipe out all the bad guys. Oh, that would have been such a better letter, Jesus. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'm here. And, and you need to have enough faith to walk with me through this pressure cooker because the deeper you go into this pressure, the closer I am. Now, why is that? Like, had this church done something to displease God? No, the church isn't poor because they've done something to displease God. They're poor precisely because they're honoring God. And let me tell you how. In almost every Roman city that we're gonna look at in these letters, they have something called trade guilds. In order to live, in order to to make any money. They're, they're kind of like trade associations now, like, uh, and, but there's not really like religious uh, attachments to these. Like, you could be part of the Cement Masons Union and not have to go like, worship the God of Cement and give an offering to it and all this. I mean, like, you could just be part of a trade association and all that you know, and, and go work. You could just do that. Well, back then there was these trade guilds, and if you wanted any work to, to get any work at all in the city, then you had to go to these trade guild dinners and you had to go associate with these people and you had to worship their gods. All the work was attached to these Roman gods. And so if you refused, like literally you couldn't work. You you were poor because you couldn't get these jobs because you would refuse to go worship their gods. That's one. Two, and, and a lot of people are always shocked to find out this happened. They, they always think this is something that's going to happen, and it might. I don't know. But what definitely did happen is that you would carry these little pieces of paper around called tributes, and you would go pay your uh, tax to Caesar, and you would pay your tribute to Caesar, and what essentially you would say is, I live at the will of Caesar, and Caesar is Lord. The Jews were exempt from having to say this, by the way, and we'll get to that in a second. But if you didn't have that little piece of paper, guess what you couldn't do? You couldn't buy or sell. You couldn't trade. You couldn't work. That was your ticket into making a living. And so many, many Christians all around the Roman world said, you know, we're just going to go lie, and we're just going to go do this because you got to do this in order to work and all that stuff. But this church refused to do it. They refused to kiss the ring of Caesar. They refused to say that he is Lord. And so, this, Smyrna, this church in Smyrna was suffering the pressure. The word tribulation here is thalipsis. It's a technical term. It's not used in normal life pressures. It's always in connection with the coming of the kingdom of God, which is a really interesting way of using that. Essentially, what it's saying is that as the church Um, continues doing the right thing, then philipsis comes or pressure or tribulation or something comes because what you're doing is when you're revealing the kingdom of God in your life, then you're causing the kingdom of darkness to freak out. And that's what was happening here. The kingdom of darkness was coming in from all sides and trying to to threaten this church and hurt this church and harm this church. So my next fill-in for you is this. Is my life a threat to the kingdom of darkness? Is my life a threat to the kingdom of darkness? Maybe some of you need to write that question down and go home later and ask the Lord that. Lord, is my life a threat to the kingdom of darkness? Or am I sitting on a fence somewhere out of the game? Just kind of sitting on the bench like, yeah, uh, put me in coach, but you don't really mean it you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll go in. I'll I'll do what you need me to do, Lord. Uh, But you're sitting on the bench. Isn't your life a threat in the greatest way possible to the kingdom of darkness existing in our city? If not, what are you waiting for? Get in the game. Don't be afraid of what's to come. That's the message that Jesus wants to give to this church, and I believe our church today the kingdom of gar- darkness has this really great lie, and is super believable, and at the end of the day, that is it's still, still a lie. The lie of the kingdom of darkness is, there's a middle ground, there's gray areas, just, just live in the gray. I think the kingdom of darkness doesn't care if you engaged against it or not, just as long as you do nothing to stop it. Most people and nobody here is going to claim to be on the side of the kingdom of darkness. Nobody's going to claim that. But most people also are not feeling the pressure of being against it. When you're against the kingdom of darkness, living in such a way that you're bringing about God's kingdom of light, you're going to feel pressure in your life, and that's a good thing. You're going to feel a little bit of suffering in your life. Praise the Lord, you're on the right track. You're going to be like this guy, Richard Wumberland, who can't stand to see what's happening and have to speak the truth. Praise the Lord, that's a good thing. The believers in this church intrinsically got it. They got persecution and they celebrated. I think, I was thinking about this week and in America, who are the people that probably face the most pressure because of their faith? I was thinking about that. And I almost wonder this, and, and I'm just wondering out loud here, there's a lot of people that feel the pressure of their faith in work environments and things like that, but I think it's got to be the hardest right now to be a teenager at school and a proclaiming Christian. It's got to be the hardest right now for teenagers who get ridiculed because they say, no, no, no sex is reserved for marriage. That's what we believe the Scriptures say. You're, you're All of a sudden you look like, like an alien in your world. Right? You're like stuff coming out of your face, like you're weird. You're ridiculed as a teenager if you believe that Jesus is God and you won't capitulate to what the rest of the teenagers are doing. It's gotta be one of the hardest things to be a teenager and to follow Jesus right now because of just the pressure that they're constantly under. They feel the pressure. Like Pastor Richard Wumberlin, who had to make this stand in front of Soviet officials. Our teenagers go to school and say, I believe in Jesus. And they feel this intense pressure now, not just by their students, but by teachers too. If you're living your life for Jesus, you should be feeling pressure. It's a good thing. It means that darkness is freaking out. It means that you're, you're on the right track. And he says, I know you're poverty, you're rich. And we'll, we'll talk about this later in... Um, in the book of Revelation more too, but it's really about these trade guilds. They are poor because they can't work. But Jesus says, you don't understand how rich you are. You don't understand. You you guys might be poor, but you're really the only ones that get it. You get it. So it makes me ask the question, what is success in the kingdom of God? What is success in following Jesus. And I think he defines it right here. Success in the kingdom of God is living as a faithful witness. That's what it is. That's your next fill in. Success is living as a faithful witness to Jesus. Somebody who faithfully responds, not like in an antagonistic way, you don't have to fight everybody's opinion or something like that. You could just simply love them and pray for them. But somebody who's revealing Jesus. To these other people. That's what a faithful witness is. And then we've got to cover this this verse. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, many people have said, well, this sounds anti Semitic. And just let me break this down a little bit for you because there's no way that this could actually be anti Semitic, right? And I'll share with you why. It's like, so John is a Jew right? John's a Jewish guy. And the way that the message of Christianity spread is you have to understand that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So what do the Jews do first is they put together missionary sects. They never see themselves as a different religion, only when they begin to be persecuted and then systematically kicked out of the synagogues. They put together these sects of people who are going to go to all the synagogues around the known world. And they go to them and they worship, they practice the Sabbath, they, they, they pay the temple tax, they do all the different Jewish things, they do all the festivals that they're supposed to do, and then they say, good news, the one we've been waiting for, the one who could save us, has come. His name is Jesus. He died and he rose again. And for many years, the Jewish synagogues in Rome allowed Christians to live right alongside them until the pressure got too big for them. And here's what happened. Right around 90 AD, there's this Jewish council called the Council of Jamnia. And in that council, they said that anybody who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, it needs to be put out of the synagogue. Now, here's why they're called the synagogue of Satan in this letter. Essentially, what was happening was that the Christians were living under the political cover of the Jews in the Roman world. The Jews obviously would not go do the tribute to Caesar. They would not kiss the ring. They wouldn't pay the tribute. They wouldn't do all that stuff. Instead, they had an agreement with the Roman Empire. They said, look, there's many of us here. You're going to have to round us all up and kill us. Or we could agree to pray for your emperor and the Roman Empire in our services. We'll pray for you. And we won't pray for him as a God, but we will pray. You have to understand our system and all that. So they had this handshake agreement with the Roman Empire that they wouldn't be persecuted. But what happened was the Jews began kicking out their fellow Jews who said that Jesus was the Messiah. So they kicked them out. And then they began to inform on them because they still had to be good Roman citizens. So they began to inform on them to the secret police because secret police were still a thing they were a thing. Secret police come from the ancient world, right? And so they begin to inform on this church. And so essentially what Jesus is saying to to John and to this church is this synagogue that was helping you walk through life has no longer made it so you could work anymore. Because if you were part of the synagogue, you could work without going to trade guilds. It was a great agreement. But all of a sudden now you're homeless and you've got nothing. And so these guys were seen as almost like the Benedict Arnold of of, uh, the Jewish synagogues back then. It wasn't anti-Semitic. John was a Jew. It's almost like saying, you know, I was attacked by this person and, oh, man, it's terrible that I got attacked. It doesn't make you anti-human for saying, oh, somebody attacked me, you know? And that's exactly what was going on here. They could no longer use the political cover. They were put out of the synagogues of the Lord and synagogues were i'm sorry synagogues were formerly called synagogues of the lord but now jesus calls them synagogues of satan because they were now acting in concert with the roman empire to persecute his people revelation 2:10 jesus says do not fear what you are about to suffer behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation the ellipsis be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. One of the questions that comes up in this letter is, will the devil literally throw them into prison? So if we had a video of some of the acts in Smyrna, you would probably not find like this devil creature with horns and a tail like chasing after people. You would find government officials, secret police and all that chasing after people and persecuting them. What Jesus is saying is behind the political forces behind the hostile religious forces are forces of evil. That's what you do. Paul would talk about this too. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but about these spiritual forces, these forces of darkness in the world. There's a chaplain of the United States Senate. His name was Richard Halverson, and he said this, no adequate understanding of history can be had without taking into account the fact that behind and around and through history, a personal, diabolical, satanic spiritual force is, dis- is bent on destroying all good and its author, Jesus Christ. We have to understand that the believers of Smyrna were not the real targets of evil Jesus was. And since they lost the battle to Jesus, they'll go after what is most near and dear to Jesus, and that is his followers. And that's what's happening in Smyrna as well. This is what I believe happened in the USSR under Stalin. This is now what is happening in China. This is now what's happening in Middle Eastern countries, that believers in North Africa and around the world, who because of their Christ-likeness are being persecuted. Just because they're acting like Jesus, they're being persecuted. This is what's going on. The forces of evil want nothing to do with it. Evil's freaking out. And then Jesus says, "You'll be persecuted for 10 days." And this has special and important significance, because like I said, it, the, the, the book of Revelation is the Old Testament thrown into a blunder, and John just started painting with the brushes of, of the I just mixed metaphors, paint blunders. You have to just stick with me here as I mix metaphors, and John is just mixing, pulling these, uh, these Old Testament references in here. Well, two times in Daniel chapter 1, does Daniel talk about being tested for 10 days where he doesn't eat the food of the king's table. Now, remember, eating the food of the king's table is pledging allegiance to the king. And so he said, give us fruit and vegetables, or just give us vegetables, Right? Actually, in the Hebrew, it says, give us seed-bearing plants. And that tracks all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. That's extra credit points. It'll be on the test later. Um, but this is what Daniel says. Just give us food from Eden and, and we will be we will be healthier. And test us for 10 days. And they never capitulated to Nebuchadnezzar. And they were tested for 10 days and they came out better. And this is this little reminder to the church. Look, be like Daniel and his friends. Be like Daniel and his friends who were tested for 10 days and they came out the other side better. You know, you're going to come out the other side better too. It means you're going to die, but you're going to live again with me. You're going to come out better. And I will give you the crown of life. Now, like I said, this town was called the crown of Asia. This town also has hosted the Olympic Games, and so also... (laughs) They give crowns for winning the Olympics. And so this idea of a crown would have been very, um, a very normal thing in their culture. And Jesus is saying, you will share in my victory. You will share in my kingdom because you're meant to be a kingdom of priests. So I want you to share in my victory. You will have victory with me. Boldly walk with me. And then the, the, the promise is this. He who, who has an ear to hear, this is verses, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to explain this, I want to end with the story of the Bishop Polycarp. I told you in the very beginning, Polycarp came from this church, and he was a a leader who who essentially was, uh, was killed for his faith. And this is a story. The Bishop Polycarp came from this church and most likely even read this letter to the church. He was martyred, and his death shines a light on this. He was arrested on the charge of being a Christian, a member of a politically dangerous cult. He was martyred, and his death shines light on this. Amidst the angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on such a gentle old man and urged Polycarp to proclaim Caesar is Lord. If only Polycarp would make this declaration and offer a small pinch of incense, just a small one, to Caesar's statue— He could escape torture and death. To this, Polycarp responded, 86 years I've served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Steadfast in his stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs and thus was burned alive at the stake. Before he died, he prayed that he would be an acceptable sacrifice. When he was thrown onto the fire, the account of his death was that there was an aroma of bread baking or of gold and silver being refined. The words of Mrs. Wurmbrand ring in my head. I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. I wonder what Jesus would say about that. I don't know. I don't wish to be a coward for Jesus. I think back of the words of Jesus, Luke chapter 9, verse 26 says, For whomever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I have two responses for you today. I want to invite the band to come as we do this. First, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to live your faith boldly. It doesn't mean you need to jump down other people's throats and win arguments. It, it, it means that you're just not shaped by that culture that's so pervasive in our world, and you're more shaped by the scriptures and who Jesus is than by the world, and that you love people with the love that Jesus loved you, and that you don't capitulate, that you, that you don't say, oh, it's okay, I could do this, or I could participate in that, and, and you know that it's dishonoring the Lord. Live your faith boldly. To live in such a way honors God, even if there's great personal expense. Just like this church in Smyrna, there's great personal expense to this church, and it honors God to live boldly. I want to encourage you to honor God in everything you do and live a bold walk with Jesus. Second, maybe you're here and you've been living kind of in the Christian gray area. You've been living on the fence and you know what I mean. It, it's like, oh, this is a gray area, that's a gray area. I mean, you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, but you've never taken a stand for Jesus. I mean, this all makes sense to you, and you would share the gospel, but you don't want to be one of those crazy Christians. I mean, yeah, Jesus is, is God, and, and this church thing is it's really more of my husband's thing than it is my thing. Or this church thing really is my wife's thing. It's not really my thing. I'm just here because she dragged me here. But I I do believe. I believe Jesus is God. Life is comfortable on the fence for a little while. It's okay on the fence for a little while. You can live there for a little while. But sitting on the fence will hurt in the long run. It just does. I want to encourage you. That Jesus has these incredible plans for you and this incredible convictions for you and this incredible life for you and he wants to invite you off the fence and he simply does so by saying, follow me. Follow me off the fence. Follow me into dangerous waters. Follow me into dangerous territory. This is what Jesus wants for you. Jesus is inviting you to go with him today into dangerous areas. Because he's the one who died and came to life again and has something amazing planned for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for our church. I pray for any of us who might be sitting on the fence, who might be in the gray area of Christianity and say, I don't really want to take a stand for you. God, would you give us the boldness of your spirit? Would you give us the love that you have for others? Would you pour your love into us? And God, would you help us to proclaim all who you are to the world, to our families, to our culture around us. Help us to not be shaped by our culture, but to pour your love into it. We ask for all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.